Alright, you can put away your hymnals and please take out your Bibles. You can turn to John chapter 14. John 14, starting in verse 1. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Thus ends the reading of God's holy word. Please be seated. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for drawing us together as your people. We thank you for the privilege of being able to come gathered in your name. Father, we pray now that you would bless the preaching of your word. Lord, may it do far more than what we could ask or think. May it do far more than what it merely should based on simply human ability, human skill. Uh, But Lord, may your spirit be pleased uh, to move in the hearts and minds of your people. Lord, we know that unless you move, there's nothing worth happening that is going to happen. And so I ask that you would, for your glory, for the expansion of your kingdom, we pray that you would come and would bless the preaching of your word. May it be your truth that is said and nothing else. Lord, get me out of the way and simply speak to your people. Lord, I pray that this would be blessed now unto the edification of your people and to the conversion of sinners. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So we're continuing in John picking up where we left off in chapter 14. Jesus here is seeking to comfort his disciples. You remember, we are now in the upper room where Jesus and his disciples are celebrating Passover on the night that he will be betrayed. The betrayer has just been identified and has gone out into the night. Christ then prophesied Peter's denial as well. And most notably to our sermon this morning, Jesus has just told them that he is leaving them and that where he is going, they cannot come. Christ then turns to comfort his disciples. Now, last Sunday, we camped out on verse 1 to do a bit of a deeper dive into the topic of anxiety, looked at how faith in God and in Christ is the remedy that Christ prescribes for a troubled heart as Christ begins to seek to comfort his disciples. to give them a reason as to why they need not let their hearts be troubled. And just uh, before we get into that, in, in this, this very fact that Christ is seeking to bring comfort to them, we see the tremendous strength of character displayed by our Lord. Right, consider what's about to happen. Jesus is the one with the greatest cause for a troubled heart. He is the one who is preparing to be arrested, to be tortured, to be crucified, and to be made sin for his people, enduring the wrath of God against sin on the cross. 
What he was about to endure would far surpass the difficulties that his disciples would be facing. And yet Christ turns to comfort them. We see tremendous poise, tremendous love, tremendous strength as he devotes his attention to his disciples, seeking to comfort them, strengthen them. So for ourselves, as we seek to grow in Christ-likeness, let us grow to seek to imitate this strength of his. That whatever we are facing, we would not be thinking only of ourselves, but of those around us, especially those in our care, in our charge. So fathers, when you are burdened by the anxieties that come from challenges in your work or in your home, know that you are imitating your Savior when you refuse to let your burdens become their burdens. You are showing the same kind of strength of character when you seek to comfort them, even when you yourself are under tremendous pressure. May we strive to imitate the strength of Christ. So Jesus will now turn to seek to comfort his disciples, and he will go on to give a number of glorious reasons as to why his disciples need not let their hearts be troubled. And it is to the first of those reasons that we turn now. Jesus says, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house, there are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. So notice the heading here. Jesus is bringing comfort to his disciples, trying to still their troubled hearts, bringing peace to them. And here we get the first reason that he gives. He seeks to encourage and comfort them by speaking to them of heaven. In my Father's house, there are many rooms. Now, some translations here say mansions. Uh, that was a word that captured my imagination. I remember as a kid uh, imagining what my particular mansion would be like in heaven. I was always told it'll be better than you could ever imagine. And so, like a typical nine-year-old, I pictured one floor with a hockey rink, another floor with a dirt bike track, that kind of thing. Uh, but the word that Christ uses here simply means dwelling place. Now, not to be discouraged, don't worry. Uh, though you may not have a literal mansion, you will not be disappointed in heaven. Uh, the word Christ uses here simply means dwelling place. It is the same word that Christ will use later in verse 23, where he says that he and his father will come and will... Um, Come to the believer and make their home with him, right? their dwelling place. This word is an abode, a dwelling. Now, since Christ is speaking of heaven, metaphorically, as his father's house, we see the ESV's translation of rooms fits very well. So the point that Jesus is making here is that there will be ample provision for all of his disciples to join him in his father's house. Now again, remember how this point is functioning in the text. This is a supporting argument, a reason as to why his disciples need not let their hearts 
be troubled. Jesus says God's house is large. It has many rooms. He's not going to run out of space. And as we see at the end of verse 2, he says, there is space for you. Plural. I go to prepare a place for you. For you, Peter. For you, Thomas. For you, Philip. And we see these rooms are in God's house. Not his inn. Not his motel. That's important. It's a big difference. God's children live with him in his house. He says to his disciples, you will not simply be guests here. Remember the introduction to this gospel. As many as did receive him, receive Christ, those who believed in his name, Christ gives the right to become the children of God. Christ seeks to comfort his disciples by telling them there is room in God's house for them. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? Jesus here appeals to his own honesty, his own candor in dealing with his disciples. Would I have told you this if it weren't true? Would I fill your head with empty promises? Perish the thought. Verse 3. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, so that where I am, there you may be also. Jesus says he is going to prepare a place. And in this we see that the cause of the disciples' grief gets turned into a cause for joy. Jesus has told them he's going to leave them. They've been saddened by this. They don't want him to go. They love Christ. They want to follow him. And so in their minds, Jesus leaving them is a bad thing. A cause for grief, for trouble, for sorrow. We don't want you to go, Lord. At least until they will understand why he was leaving them. He's leaving them to prepare them a place. D.A. Carson notes that in the context of Johannine theology, that is, in the way that John has been writing of these things, it is the going itself via the cross and resurrection that prepares the place for his disciples. Have you ever wondered, what does Jesus mean when he says he goes to prepare a place? Right? Is Jesus saying that heaven was in shambles and Christ the carpenter has some renovation work to do up there before it will be ready for his disciples? No. Rather, we see the work that Jesus needs to do, what he needs to do for preparation, is his work of redemption. And the aim of this work is preparing a place for them so they can be where he is. They can be with him. For apart from the work of Christ, apart from his perfect life, his death for sins on the cross, his resurrection, ascension, 
and intercession at the right hand of the Father, apart from all of this, his disciples have no place in heaven. Apart from this, you have no place in heaven. Now we'll come back to this yet in verse 6, but we must understand that apart from the work of Christ, we have no share with God. We are not his children. We have no place in this house. We have no hope, no expectation of blessing or a welcome or acceptance with God. For apart from Christ, we have no redemption. We have no atonement made for our sins. We have no righteousness to stand on. Apart from Christ, if we are left to ourselves, we are sinners. And so if the disciples had understood the full scope of Christ's intentions and the purpose for which he had been sent, then they would have seen it is to theirs and to our great eternal benefit that Christ departs from us right now. For he has a great mission, a great work to do. He is leaving, yes, but only in order to prepare a place so that we can be with him forever. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. Again, compare verse 33 of chapter 13, just the previous section, and see what Jesus had told them there. He said, Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. Now this had been a big part of what troubled the disciples, but here now we see the answer. They will not be parted forever. Jesus is going, but the reason he's going is to prepare a place. And if he's going to do all this work of preparing a place, preparing the way for them, then you better believe he will ensure that they get there. If I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. So whatever trouble of heart they felt in hearing of their master's departure, this is now the good news that should still their troubled hearts. Though they may be separated for a time, Christ is only departing so that they can one day be with him forever. He will come back again and take them to himself. Now, there have been a number of suggestions made as to what specifically Jesus means here. Some have suggested that he's referring to the death of the apostles, of the disciples, saying that when they die, he will bring them to himself, then they will be with him. And there's certainly a sense in which that's true. Uh, others, such as D.A. Carson, argue, and I think this is the, the stronger case, uh, that since the only death that's been mentioned in this context is that, that of Christ, it's more likely he's referring to his second advent, 
his second coming, at the end of history when he will return for his church and they will be with him forever. But either way, I believe the point is clear. We see now the reason that Jesus gives his disciples as to why their hearts should not be troubled is firstly that he is only leaving in order to prepare a place for them and that he will bring them to himself. And so, despite their temporary separation, they will get to be with him forever. And in this, there is deep comfort, both for them and for us. As we battle with anxiety in our own lives, it really ought to make all the difference in the world to know how this story ends. What kind of story is this? What kind of tale is God telling? Are we living in a tragedy? A dark comedy? Is this just a sick and twisted cosmic joke? Or is this the kind of story where good triumphs over evil and everything sad becomes untrue? Now, if you're one of the characters in the story, begins to become rather impactful to know how your part in the story ends. And while we might think that we've not been given much information or knowledge of our own story, of our own future, there's really only a tiny portion of our story that we have not been given the most important details to. Right, if you were to think of the full duration of your existence, right, which began nine months before your birthday, and then will continue forever into eternity future, you see that it's really only a tiny, tiny portion of time that you're alive on the earth that you are left wondering about. Because if you are in Christ, then you already know all of the most important things about the vast majority of your existence. If you are in Christ, then you know that you will be with him forever. So if your existence were a book that could somehow tell a never-ending story, then really, your life on earth, right, the part that you spend nearly all of your time worrying about, being anxious over, is really only the first page of that never-ending book. Or perhaps even just a few small sentences. Then you have page after page after page after page of your existence with Christ into the future. Lifetime upon lifetime eon upon eon. And of this part of your existence, God has seen fit to give us a glimpse. So what then will it be like? What do we know? If we see from the text here that our heavenly existence is meant to bring us comfort and encouragement, if this point is meant to still our troubled and anxious hearts, then what will it be like? 
What has God told us about it? We have bodies. We have work to do. Now, entire books have been written on the subject, so one sermon will not be able to give an exhaustive answer, but we'll look at a couple different texts. For our first texts, text, you can turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 1 to 5. <clears throat> Second Corinthians 5, 1 to 5. For we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling, if indeed by putting it on we may not be found naked. For while we are still in this tent, we groan, being burdened, not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. Now, I love this passage. It seems to be the one that C.S. Lewis was drawing from in his novel, The Great Divorce. In that story, the main character gets to take a day trip into heaven, and despite still having his body, he finds that he is not real enough for that world. Right? The grass doesn't bend under his feet. Right? He can't even leave an impression on it. He realizes that if the raindrops would fall on him, they would plow right through him. And he looks like a ghost, almost translucent in that place. The light hurts his eyes and the colors are more vivid than what he can handle. He finds he's not real enough. Compared to the solidness of heaven, he feels like an ethereal wisp. Now whether this is exactly right or not, I believe it engages the imagination profitably. Consider this language here of Paul. Our earthly bodies are simply tents compared to the solid buildings that we will inherit. We are groaning for a more solid dwelling. Something less flimsy, something more solid, perhaps we could say more real. We are naked and are longing to be fully clothed, clothed with immortality. I believe this tent analogy hits home. We all know the weaknesses of our present bodies. They are fragile. They ache. They hurt. They slowly fall apart. We see the effects of the fall. Microscopic particles that we breathe in can flatten us for a week or a month, or in some cases can spell our end. There's nothing we can do about it. We are fragile. We are weak. These earthly temp uh, tents are flimsy, susceptible to pain and to rapid deterioration. And so Paul says, we groan in these tents, longing for the day when we get to put on immortality. For after the resurrection, these bodies won't break down. 
They won't fall apart. They will last. Death will be banished, along with sorrow, pain, and heartache. Now, beyond immortality and being free of pain, we don't know what these bodies will all be capable of. Philippians 3.21 says that when, uh, when Christ appears, that our bodies will be transformed to be like his glorious body. And given the strangeness of Christ's post-resurrection appearances, right, where he suddenly appears in locked rooms, suddenly vanishes, some people have speculated that these bodies may be capable of much more than our earthly bodies. Now, we aren't given a lot of details, so we shouldn't be dogmatic where Scripture hasn't spoken, but I believe there's nothing wrong with engaging our imaginations in this. As one author writes, how many senses are possible that are not included within our earthly natures? What is the fully loaded model like? What surprises does a God of infinite creativity have in store for us? One thing that we do know is that we will be sinless. 1 John 3 verse 2 says that when Christ appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. We know that only the righteous shall ever enter the presence of God. No unclean thing can enter there. So if we are to be made like Christ, if we will be fit for the presence of God, if there will be no more crying, mourning, or pain, all of these things require that there would be no more sin. And for the Christian, for those who have come to love God supremely, those who have found Christ to be their treasure, worth losing everything else in order to gain, the thought of being free forever from that battle of sin is one that thrills the soul. Christian, just think of your battles with sin. How you labor painfully, often in fits and starts, to put these stubborn sins to death, only to have them rear their ugly heads again when you drop your guard. What a glorious relief it will be to be freed from that battle. To have all that is earthly in you put to death once and for all, so that you will never deal with it again, never to sin against the God whom you love. And truly, the best part of heaven, what we could say is the heaven of heaven, that which makes heaven heaven, is the presence of God himself. The fact that, as he says here, we will get to be with Christ. See, this was the comfort he gave to his disciples. Not only will they be received as children, being given a place in the Father's house, but, verse 3, I will come again and will take you to myself, so that where I am, there you may be also. Is that not what the redeemed heart longs for? Not merely the blessings Heavenly feasts, streets of gold, pain-free bodies, reunions with lost loved ones, but Christ himself. 
to be with our Redeemer, our great prophet, priest, and king, our Redeemer, our Savior, who gave himself for us so that we could be with him. To be with Christ is the thing that Paul considered to be the far better option than continuing in this life. Philippians 1.23 This is what the redeemed heart longs for. This is what will thrill the soul for eternity. Not merely the full enjoying of heavenly blessings, but the full enjoying of God. For it is in, this pre- in his presence where there is fullness of joy. It is at his right hand that there are pleasures forevermore. Those of you who have tasted and seen the goodness of God know this. Christ will be the best part. Let not your hearts be troubled. There is an eternal home awaiting all of God's children. We shall be free of pain, sorrow, sin, and suffering. And we shall be with Christ forever. There's an antidote to anxiety, if ever there was one. Your eternity is secured Whatever the troubles of this present age, they will be over soon and they will give way to joy eternal. Dwelling in the house of God as a beloved child, being in the presence of Christ. And so we see from this text that this is one of the ways that God specifically intends for this doctrine to function. Right? If you were to ask, why does God tell us the things that he does about heaven? Right? Why did he reveal that in his word? Right? There's lots of things God doesn't tell us. Lots of things, lots of questions I want to ask him. Lots of things he doesn't tell us. So we ask, what is his reason for revealing this one to us? Why does he give us the information he does? And we see in this text at least one of the answers is that God intends for this doctrine to calm our troubled hearts. It is meant to bring us peace when we are facing anxiety, comfort to us in times of trouble. God intends for us to have an accurate perspective. Those who lack proper perspective will find that comparatively small things can become very, very big things. You know, this is one of the challenges faced by very small children. They lack perspective. They can't sort out in the world which things are big deals and which things are little deals. (laughs) There are some very funny videos you can find where parents will share the hilarious reasons why their children are crying. And so kids will sometimes melt down as if the world is ending over very silly things. And so part of growing in maturity is learning perspective, being able to sort things out, to see some things are not worth crying over. As the old saying goes, don't cry over spilt milk, but keep things in perspective. 
Now, one of the ways we can evaluate things to, to put them in their proper place is to evaluate duration. How long will this current problem be a problem? How long is this thing going to affect me? Is this a long-term problem? Or is this a problem that'll be behind me in the time it takes to wipe up the milk and pour another glass? Keep it in perspective. And that's what understanding heaven can do, as we read from the psalm, teach us to number our days. Grants us some much-needed perspective. The Apostle Paul writes in Romans 8, verse 18, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. And again, 2 Corinthians 4, 17 and 18, he writes, This light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. In light of what awaits us in eternity, the sufferings of this present time, Paul says, are not worth comparing, but they are both light and they are momentary. Now, I know some of you are experiencing uh, right now sufferings that feel like they are anything but light and momentary. They are weighty sufferings. Their consequences will last a lifetime. Perhaps you're saying, you're thinking to yourself, for every day of your life, you are going to have to continue to deal with this thing. And so you hear a verse like that, and it just seems to you like Paul is belittling your suffering. How could he say that? This is devouring me. Before we get to the answer, let us just first note that Paul was a man who knew suffering. If you read his list that he makes in 2 Corinthians 11, he says he had been beaten, tortured, stoned, and left for dead. He had been shipwrecked, adrift at sea for a night and a day, imprisoned, starved, in cold and exposure. On top of all of his trials, he was burdened as well with the regular pains and sorrows of this life. Lost loved ones, friends who don't know Christ, personal betrayal, and many controversies with others. This is a man who knows suffering. And so what you need to see is that he is not in any way belittling the sufferings of this life. He's not telling you to just suck it up, saying it's not really that bad. I mean, that would be a worldly form of optimism. I just put a brave face on it, right? Downplay the severity. Pretend it's not as bad as all that. That's not what Paul's doing. That's not what God does. Now, the current world record for the Atlas Stone Lift is 602 pounds. Uh, that's, that's 286 kilograms. Ask a question. Is that a small stone? No. <laughs> now you, you put that on my chest, that stone is crushing me. Right? I'm not moving 
or probably ever breathing again. <laughs> right? That is not a light rock. That is no pebble. But compared to the weight of my pickup truck, it's not very heavy. Compared to the weight of an entire mountain, that's nothing. Compare this stone to the entire earth, <laughs> and it's minuscule. Zoom out, compare the earth to the sun, <laughs> and the earth looks like nothing. Compare the sun to the largest of stars, and our sun is not worth comparing. You see, that's how much bigger, how much weightier these larger stars are. Now back to our atlas stone. It's still heavy enough to crush me, but compared to the largest things we know of, well, that stone is really not worth comparing. And that's what Paul's saying here. He's not belittling your sufferings, either in their severity or their duration. But rather, he's pointing out that by comparison, they are both light and momentary. For if you could place your suffering on one side and the eternal weight of glory, the glories of living literally forever in the presence of Christ on the other side, our earthly suffering is just as dust on the scales. It is not small by itself, but it is when compared to what awaits us. Try to think of the troubles you face in light of eternity. What percentage of your total existence will be affected by those troubles? Well, you realize quickly that you can't actually give it a percentage since the longer that you spend in eternity, the smaller that percentage would get. Right? Supposing that you live to be 100 and all of your days were filled with grief, with sorrow, trouble, and calamity. What percentage of eternity is 100 years? Once you have spent 10,000 years in the presence of the Lord, how significant will your earthly problems seem to you then? How about after 100,000 years? A million years? A billion years, a hundred billion years. Here's the point. Live your life in light of eternity. Forever is a long time. So we see this is what God intends for us, to keep things in perspective. To paraphrase A.W. Tozer, we are relieved of 10,000 temporal problems when we see that these all have to do with matters which at the most cannot concern us for very long. So brothers and sisters, preach this to yourselves. As we covered last week, answer the lies of your anxieties with the truths of God's word. Arm yourselves with the hope that God intends for his people to have. And use those truths to slay your anxieties, to answer the lies of the enemy as you start to fear 
as you start to feel anxiety. Preach this to yourself. In my Father's house, there are many rooms. Christ went to prepare one for me, to prepare a way for me. In comparison to what is awaiting me, all of my trials are both light and momentary. Truly not worth comparing to the glory that is to come. We've been looking here at the hope that Christ offers to his disciples. But there remains a very important question. To whom does this hope belong? Put another way, how may we receive this blessing? How do we get there? What is the way? Let's finish up with our text. Jesus said, and you know the way to where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now Thomas's question shows that he and perhaps some of the other disciples have not fully understood what Christ was saying. And so Jesus spells it out in verse 6. Where is he going? It's the presence of the Father. This is the destination. Having a place in the Father's house, being with Christ for eternity. And we see there is precisely one way to get there. The Lord Jesus Christ himself. Now we've been looking at comfort in the midst of anxiety, seeking to have an eternal perspective as one of the remedies that God gives us for sinful fear and anxiety. But please do not miss this. All of this comfort, all of this hope, all of this encouragement applies only to one group of people. Those who are in Christ. Those who are united to him by faith. He alone is the way to the Father. For those who do not know him, those who are still separated from him, should take absolutely no comfort from the sermon you just heard. If you are not a Christian, if you have not surrendered yourself completely to Christ alone, resting in him for salvation, if you have not done that, then thinking of eternity should not ease your anxieties at all. In fact, to tell you the truth, the thought of eternity should terrify you. Because if you are not in Christ, heaven is not your destination. If you reject Christ, you have absolutely nothing to look forward to except the eternal wrath of God in the fires of hell. Jesus is clear. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Other paths will not get you there. If you reject Christ, you will not be welcomed by God. For you then remain in your sins. 
If you reject Christ, you have no atonement, but the guilt of your sin remains on you. If you reject Christ, you have no righteousness, for you have not lived the life that God requires. And so if you reject Christ, you have no hope. No reason for encouragement as you think about eternity. Nothing but the fearful expectation of judgment. But the good news of the gospel is that God's grace is absolutely free. That though you have sinned against God and are deserving of his wrath, Jesus Christ has made a way for sinners like you to be forgiven. For sinners like me to be forgiven. So if you will simply repent of your sins, acknowledging them before God, confessing them, agreeing with God about them, and recognizing your need for a Savior, if you will turn from them and throw yourself upon the mercy of God in Christ Jesus, pleading forgiveness through him, forgiveness will be granted. You will be forgiven in full. Again, as we read from the prologue to John's Gospel, to all who did receive him, Christ, those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Through faith in Christ, you can become a child of God. Repent and believe. Receive Christ as Lord and Savior, and everything that he purchased then is yours in him. What he earned is given to you. He has prepared a place. He will bring you to himself. He is the way, he is the truth, and he is the life. Come to God through him and be welcomed as a child of God. Be joined to the people of God. Be baptized into the body. Begin the life of a disciple of Jesus. And then join his people in living for his glory in all things. Live in hope. Live in joy. Live in holiness. And live with this eternal perspective, knowing that your eternity is now secure. That whatever happens here in this life, it is all not worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed. Let not your hearts be troubled, for Jesus is the way.